Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and that means this is an all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chrono-skimming classics, and more. You can check the show out at xsforpodcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter. As for me, you can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today is sort of like, I guess like a dark magic spectacular, and I can't wait to bring you this episode. Later on, I'm going to sit with show contributor TK, and we're going to sit down and try and take apart exactly exactly all of the craziness that went into the Savage Avengers Conan revitalization here at Marvel by taking a look at the history of complex, bigger-than-life epic storytelling at Marvel. Everything from the Marvel Comics Super Specials to the unbelievable black-and-white magazine-sized fantasy sword and sorcery line that was one time the company's financial bread and butter, but is now relegated to somewhere beyond Marvel Unlimited. And we're going to talk all about that including the most omnibus editions ever published for a single character in a single year. And that's really exciting, and I can't wait to deal with that. But first up, we have a very exciting segment featuring a number of X's for Podcasts' strongest and brightest contributors talking about not just an exciting new title, Midnight Suns, but its tie-in video game. And this is part of X's for Podcasts' new drive to bring you guys a more complete discussion, taking a look at critical analysis and and the development of the idea as it compares across multiversal and multimedia formats. It's a really exciting time to get to edit this show and to produce it. And we hope you enjoy this segment. Hey, it's in your face. What's up? It's back to X's for podcast where we're here to talk about Midnight Suns. This is Nico and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N in your face. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me extremely talking about the amazingly extreme X-Men and all of our goatees. Fuck yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. Extreme! Extreme! And oh my god, that means that I'm your girl, Dame Red Thread Raven! What up, everybody? Eat my shorts. I'm Jonah, <laughs> and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. Did I do that? And by that, I mean <laughs> tweets. That's me, xNateXGrayX on Twitter and Instagram, also known as TK. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike our memories of the 90s, which are fractured but beautiful. I mean, I was a baby, so... <laughs> Calls out to the with you. five minutes of things starting. <laughs> a lot of like blue filter for no reason, slow pans across the ocean. Everybody needs the water to reflect the city as ripples slowly go out, like everybody just saw their first Studio Ghibli. So, I mean, I'm glad for this recording. So, 
So let's talk about what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Midnight Suns, who first appeared in Ghost Rider Volume 3, number 28 in A Vision, and ultimately made their first full team appearance in Ghost Rider Volume 3, number 31, created by Howard Mackey, Andy Kubert, and Bobby Chase. Wait, that can't be right, because we don't talk about weird old comics except on Mondays. So (laughs) this can't be that Midnight Suns. Of course, we're here to talk about the incredible first issue by Ethan Sachs, Luigi Zagaria, and Tony. Fabella and VCs Joe Sabino, which is a tie-in to the video game of the same name that's finally coming out this year, and I can't wait to get to it, and what a fun intro, but like, I first want to talk a little bit about the Midnight Suns that brought us here. They included both Danny Ketch and Johnny Blaze, Ghost Riders, Blade, and Morbius. Ultimately, you would have members like Doctor Strange and Hellstrom. Later versions would include characters like Elsa Bloodstone, Doctor Voodoo, the Scarlet Spider, Hannibal fucking King, Iron Fist, Werewolf by Night, Wong, and more. So the first thing I want to ask about is how does everybody feel about that sort of like gritty 90s? But also, because it's like, it's about as gritty as a grilled cheese, if you really think about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a little bit crunchy on the outside, but it's all still gooey inside, you know? Mm -hmm. How do you guys feel about those original Midnight Suns and the very idea of macabre Marvel heroes? At the time, I was like, oh, this is to lethal protectory next team up with venom like blah i was like what why isn't wolverine like just featured on everything but like that was the 90s so like it was very much a product of its time i don't know that it genre defined anything for me but i i think that they were always something that like in the back of some part in my mind you were always aware of like oh yeah the midnight suns that happened right it's like the secret defenders right that happened that uh, is not dissimilar from my experience this was coming out right at the start of my getting into comics and at the time I found Ghost Rider really distasteful it's just not a character I could get into as a six and seven year old and I was aware of the idea of the Midnight Zones but I was also young and like even trying to keep like minimal X-Men continuity in my head and understood was a Sisyphean task that took years to get better at and you know there was no access to back issues so it was one of those things that I was aware of and I knew that like throughout comics history it had kind of continued i ended up reading a lot of the like early stuff with victoria montesi a few years back for queer people reasons and you know i i thought it was cool i guess what i'm i i now find it really interesting because we are seeing a renaissance of the juxtaposition of marvel horror and marvel magic and the horror stuff is just really on point in so many ways we've covered some incredible stories including the most recent uh, Marvel Infinity comic about Werewolf by Night. There's just so much stuff that I find really cool about this. And now I find it as kind of like an interesting archaeological experiment to read the previous stuff and sort of try and get an idea of what Marvel wanted to do with their horror, magic, dark fantasy stuff 20, 30 years ago. This is about as gritty as the Phillies mascot. And I don't know exactly if this is the newest of ideas in general. You know, I think I've seen a a good handful of comics of Marvel's like, we're gonna be edgy. We're gonna do something dark. And it's uh, it's like, I feel like there's like a bunch of nightlights around, but it doesn't feel like it goes to places where it's like, I think- We're getting spooky. It's really (laughs) spooky. Oh my God, hold my juice box. It's kind of like goosebumps. And maybe when you're like a a younger person, you're like, this is scary. Yikes. Zoinks. And then 
when you get older, you're like, oh, well, I guess maybe it's scary to somebody. Not me. Something that I liked uh, about the original Defenders is that it was a bunch of heroes kind of coming together to come for a certain cause where, you know, you had like Doctor Strange, Mr. Fantastic and Beast and a bunch of other, you know, here and there people that floated in and out. What I like about the idea of it is this is the same thing, kind of, where you have this society of heroes who specifically will come together to fight impending supernatural apocalypse. I like that idea of almost like this call to action that they're specifically bonded, that they're, it's like this rotating cast. And in that way, I'm on board with it. I don't know if there's, I like the variety that we're currently getting right now. And I wonder if there's a way to give us a little more variety in terms of the kind of characters that we currently have. I totally agree. And I am the person who grew up, literally grew up in the 90s because I was born in the 80s. Like, I never want to downplay the amount of talent that goes into creating comic books, but DC's Vertigo has a huge, like, impact. They went not just edgy, but, like, over the edge. Whereas Marvel tried to be horror, but still somewhat, you know, younger comic book reader friendly. And so those two ideas didn't match up overly well. So it felt like they had a bunch of their quote-unquote dark, edgy horror characters, and they're like, we don't really touch these problems properties much because they might make people scared or sad so we're just we're gonna you know what we'll put them in a book of their own and we'll do cool and edgy things sort of to them and it's like it turned into more like a a cheesy romp more often than not but i loved them because these were all the dark edgy characters that i actually loved well okay except for morbius i couldn't don't ask my hatred goes back a long ways (laughs) but yeah like it they tried really hard back then and they're still trying really hard now but like i think they're they've had other properties that really did like horror and and tension really really well and this was this was more just okay these are my these are my favorite dark characters but somebody doesn't know what emo is and i yeah there is really a sort of if we use a lot of dark marker it's scary vibe to the midnight sun stuff and you guys kept saying over the edge on the edge it's edgy i hope you guys know that when the midnight sun's line was canceled all of the books became marvel edge and the crossover event was called over the edge and then they had another one double edge and so yeah edge edge lords edge lords yes now of course we're not talking about any specific book and we're not talking about any specific creators we're talking more about a cultural understanding of how these things came off now the best attempts to create something real and honest at the time are always going to age a little funny and I do agree with the assessment that Vertigo did the same thing not just better but first there's a couple of exceptions and while clearly Persona Non Grata Warren Ellis's Hellstrom had a number of artists and themes that would later go on to be prevalent over at Vertigo in the pages of Hellblazer so there was the occasional book that shone into the sort of heart of darkness as it were hey that's the second Ed Hardcourt beneath the heart of darkness reference I get to make on this show and I'm really eager to see this new interpretation of the Midnight Suns. Now, here's my question for you guys. When you look back on that period, what elements are you like, no, I would bring that forward. For me, I agree with Raven
Damon and Jonah, I kind of like this idea of brotherhood and camaraderie through the darkness. And that's like kind of cool that like anybody could pick up and be part of the team that embraces the their own dark, not like, you know, is dark, but like embraces their dark that they just can't, you know, erase and still saves the day. I just really find that compelling. Is there something about that era that you guys are like, okay, well, but and. No, I, I'm going to agree with you on that. Like I, I want a character to be able to lean into the nastier, grittier, more visceral side of their personality from time to time. If it's always, you know, Steve Rogers, Captain America, we're going to do our best, but we never get to see like nomad. Like there needs to be two sides to a personality. There needs to be two sides to a character, or at least the character needs to be able to have some flex and flow. Cause if they only do one thing, it feels really rigid. And I think you miss out on being able to grow and develop as a person and as a character. Well, and I like a team like this where there's no like institution. There's no professor Xavier. That's like, I've brought you all together. There's stuff that comes up and then characters who, you know, might be Avengers, might be X-Men, might be uh, doing their own solo stuff, but are tied to the worlds of horror and magic. They show up and they, you know, I guess we're doing this now and a team forms out of whatever the need is. Um, And then the story continues. I really like that as a setup. It could get formulaic to have a team that's like Avengers magic. But that's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's essentially what the Midnight Suns have ended up becoming. But the way that the team comes together sort of unofficially and organically is really cool. It seems like kind of a thing that has been brought forward to the to this run. I would love to see that continue long term and have somebody be like, yeah, you know, if you show up and Ilyana's there and Doctor Strange comes around and there's a Ghost Rider, you're probably on the Midnight Suns now. Also, the queer aspect that we got from Victoria Montesi was groundbreaking at the time. And if not like directly brought back, like directly having Victoria brought back, I'd love to see that woven in in ways that acknowledge and respect what the earlier stories were doing. Nathan, do you have anything about those early books that like really imprinted on you and like contributed to your sort of understanding of the Marvel Dark? Because I know Marvel Dark gets real campy. My experience growing up with Marvel, like Dark and Magic was more centered around the X-Men. It was like Saturnine and all her crazy stuff in the 40s issues of Excalibur. It was Ooh, Tara, what's she doing? But like when I've gone back and read those those more magical stories, I think what really resonated well with me was an embracing of any popularization of, of magic as not just a force of evil, which thinking back at the time, like, you know, like, oh, witches and magic were always like evil, evil characters, right? So I, I like the the nuanced understanding of, you know, just being more than just like the the dark hidden element of it I, I like it being brought to the forefront i do like the stories that they told where you know people heroes weren't just heroes you know we were resoundedly in that age of heroes all had their own you know dark secret their own dark part i'm, I'm sorry i gotta say i do love some of the co- the costumes of the era because they were so over the top in camp and like guns and pouches everywhere so yeah i i'm gonna be honest if the tie-in game doesn't have the ability to put people in class 
classic costumes, I'm going to lose my shit. And just to touch on the game for a moment, this Marvel's Midnight Suns comic wouldn't really properly exist without the tie-in game of the same name. Marvel's Midnight Suns is developed by Firaxis Games. Now, people probably know Firaxis better for XCOM, right, and Civilization, and they have put together sort of a really different looking game, and I don't know if you guys have checked out the trailers, we'll definitely link to them on the Twitter, but it's such a bold decision to do this tie-in comic to this game, because the game does have a pretty gritty, visceral, very dark street magic fire, you know, coming out of the sewer grates kind of vibe, and the book is decidedly brighter, but three things need to be stated about the differences between the game and the book. The game, instead of having the incredible Kushala, who is like, on this show, in this room of people, a holy figure, uh, has the equally holy Robbie Reyes. Terrific. Number two, you get to play as your own character named The Hunter, but now all I can hear is the X-Files Fight the Future soundtrack remix of Bjork's Hunter, and it's like playing in a loop on my head. It's tough. (laughs) And... The other thing I want to mention is that the game is now scheduled for release December 2nd, 2022, and that's on a number of systems, and then more systems are going to follow. Something that we have specifically tracked on this show is that Marvel tends to stop promoting the book when the tie-in is no longer new. Now, I know that the life cycle on a video game is significantly longer than the life cycle on a film or on a TV show for that matter, but I just want to say that Edixis for Podcast is going to commit to this whole book. We are not going to drop off when the game stops being heavily promoted when we roll into quarter two, and I'm very excited to talk about this. Now, I know I'm going to pick the game up for PC, and I'm going to start streaming this on Twitch. I can't wait. This is going to be like a big moment for me. You know, getting to play as Nico and Robbie Reyes kind of is like literally the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) Does anybody else have any relationship with the game, interest, or, you know, even if you're a non-gamer, just and affection for the idea. I'm definitely picking it up. Also plan to stream it. For that reason, I'll be doing it on PC and specifically on the computer because right now I've been obsessed with my Steam Deck. Not the easiest to stream from, so planning around that. I'm excited about the genre. Tactical turn-based strategy is not, I think, where any of our minds go Where when we think about Marvel games in the first place. And then for a team like this, there's nothing gimmicky that like leads you to, oh, of course, course it would be a a turn-based combat game like it's that team but they have picked a unique corner of the marvel universe to draw from i'm really excited to see the ways that they mesh this particular genre with the characters that we have and how the story is going to reflect what we know about each of these people also just some of the animations the one that i see constantly and i think has taken everybody's breath away is Ilyana. just i'm so excited to see some of this come to life and just to add to that really quickly speaking of like the quality of the work that we've seen Nico Minoru is going to be voiced by Lyrica Okano who was Nico on the Runaways oh I did not that realize that that's so, so exciting on so many levels I'm fucking yeah I, you know that's I'm Nico she's Nico we're Nico it's what we do <laughs> of course I'm gonna track down the game eventually like it's gonna be on Switch so hell yeah just the ability to play 
Yana or Robbie or Nico. I fucking love her so much. Like, I probably will never be playing as Logan unless I have to, but <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> I feel like inevitably you wind up playing as Logan early on when you haven't figured out how to deal with damage because usually his healing factor means that unless things go really tits up, he at least stays alive and you can recover from that. Or that was just me playing all the Alliance games, Legends and Alliance. Yes. Yeah, I'm hoping it's going to be very similar-ish, like, in some ways to the Alliance games. Obviously, it's got its own gameplay mechanic, but I'm, like, I'm hoping it's going to have some of that feel. Like, I'm a gamer, but I'm a very particular type of gamer. You know, Overwatch 2 right now, so I can be a healer and scream at people. Um, but, Sounds very uh, you. Wait, Raven, real quick, who do you main? Okay, so if I'm a tank, I'm usually maining as Orisa, but I am trying out Junker Queen. Oh, yeah. Because she's just, oh, she's fabulous. She's hard to kill. I love her. But I also freaking love my big old Ori. So getting that big old metal ass in there. She's, uh, that and she has so many, like, funny, funny, funny lines. So she has good voice laugh. lines. Who's your support main? So my support main is Moira. Yes, awesome. Okay, And sorry. I, t- <laughs> I tend to play Total Mayhem, <laughs> and I am the moira that you will learn to fucking load because i am on the point dodging constantly and putting out the best laser light show ever <gasps> so like people are like am i being healed or am i being melted what the shit is going on oh my god somebody kill this moira and i'm like get your ass on the point i've been here for five minutes we need healing well if you want the healing show up to where your healer is dumbass so yeah <laughs> i am <laughs> respect on all of that and then if if i am doing dps i am usually a junker and but i'm not i'm not the junker that sits up on a ledge i am a dive bomber i am the i'm the kamikaze style junker so i will launch myself you will be getting hit from above you will be trapped constantly you will hate me i feel like with all these play styles you will be really good at midnight songs okay then i might actually pick it up I want to I want to see a little bit of the gameplay first just so I can see if it's like okay yeah this is something I dealt with. Oh yay. Cuz yeah I'm 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 ADHD. That's why I play Total Mayhem so freaking much. I need that much stimulation. So I might still pick it up which would be actually yeah. I would I would want to play Logan but I also really want to play Magic. So yeah. Of course. So after the s- surprise sleeper hit that people I don't think were expecting to be fun succeed and do well of Mario Rabbids. I really do kind of appreciate XCOM style games. I think they can be fun. They offer some really interesting strategy gameplay that I find really interesting comparative to standard tactic style games a la things like uh, Advance Wars, Fire Emblem, Final Fantasy Tactics, those style kind of games where, you know, it's grid-based and like you move one at a time, whereas this we're using your entire 3D environment, I think could be really interesting. I am excited for it i will be picking it up some system who knows maybe i'll spin a wheel and we'll pick it th- through that i am interested because <laughs> i just remember reading an article that people were disappointed that you couldn't date the characters like you can't romance anybody and i find that hysterical oh, that people thought God, that was going to be part of this um i don't know if that was just the fire emblem cl- uh crowd that was just really into like like wait what do you mean i can't date wolverine and it's like no that, that's not no you could grow close you could be platonic but you can't date anybody that messes with too many things well, I mean, you have to get Gene's permission first. That is fair. But uh, yeah, uh, I am interested to see how how the story of the game will coincide and differ from the story of the comics. <laughs> 
because right now that whole setup, that whole amazing discussion that I I loved, I've really enjoyed what we've talked about has nothing to fucking do with this comic because the thing that sort of stammered me is when we heard that Zoe Laveau from Strange Academy was going to be in the book, I think we all lit up a little bit. Everybody in this room loves Strange Academy. We are all big fans of that incredible series. We were lucky enough to talk to Scotty Young aeons ago now, but I was really, truly shocked that this sort of felt like an attempt to level up sections of Strange Academy without taking away the innocence of the book. The creative team did something I didn't expect, which is alongside Terry Bloss's incredible Ava, I feel like there is room, and in the pages of Reptile, I feel like there is room for these characters to make room for Zoe, and while in a perfect world, every character could just have their, you know, I'm coming out, Diana Ross, jiggling Lil' Kim's boob kind of moment, I feel like oftentimes you need to give them an angle to grow into that adulthood, and if this book is ultimately a vehicle for Zoe, I am so in. I think also embracing a slight turn, you know, Strange Academy is pretty firmly magic and love it, but Zoe is a zombie, which takes us a little more into horror territory, which Strange Academy can kind of touch, but is always going to be primarily magic-focused. And as I mentioned, we're seeing Marvel really shore up their horror stuff. Horror almost inevitably will end up tying into magic stuff, but Midnight Suns is a really fantastic opportunity to put her in conversation with other horror and dark fantasy characters in a way that reflects the 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 truth of her character which is that she is a zombie and allows her to interact with those other elements that are part of that particular genre while of course making it really important that she has this kind of background and training from Strange Academy. My favorite thing about this first issue so far is that Ethan Sachs really really had to afford over the content of Strange Academy to create this book and you know maybe sought some advice from Scotty Young or or just had that good of a grasp of the character that like all of these characters feel like you know especially because with the first time you get a character written without their creator you're always wary of how it's going to go but like this the characterization was beautiful all of the the characters from Desi to even you know the characters that we've seen throughout other runs but in Strange Academy as well it, it all flows so perfectly and I'm just I'm really excited to see that and where this is going to go and definitely need to know more about not only Zoe but like also you know her girlfriend Desi and like I got to see more of the limbo demon falling in love I'm critical only because I reviewed all of Strange Academy so I have a very solid concrete vision of who Zoe is and what Strange Academy is like and like I'm not I'm so not knocking Midnight Suns for this it felt a little bit different so it's probably going to take me more than one issue to see if I really like where they're going with Zoe because I have a really really like a kind of a deep connection with Zoe and Desi and not just you know queer identity but also like identifying as a black woman and and what it means when people think or 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 feel or are biased that you're scary that you're powerful that um you could do a lot 
And here we have Zoe, this beautiful, wonderful, very complicated black woman who is dealing with, you know, what it is like to be a zombie because she made some bad decisions, but her family tried to help her out. And this is the situation she's now in. So now she's, she's, she's a scary black woman who could possibly end the world. And as we saw, a lot of people are freaking out. And I'm like, ooh, this, this hits on a kind of a different place for me. So I'm still seeing if I, if I like it or, you know, are they going to go good places with this or are they going to lean into a, a, a trope that could go like not so great places? So I'm, I'm, I'm reserved. I'm reserved, but hopeful. I think it's interesting. I, I feel like one of the really big things that this book could do for Zoe in particular, Strange Academy, they are kids in school. They are all coming into adulthood in various ways. And it's interesting to watch that happen, to see where they're still kids. I realized when you said, when you called Zoe a black woman, that I've been thinking her of her as a girl and that this book really is that big step into womanhood that I wonder if a book like Strange Academy just not, might not be prepared to do for every character. And especially given that she is a black woman and that there is this element of you're scary to people, having a separate track to give her the space to be a woman and not be a kid in school could be really helpful for expanding what we know about the character. So when it comes to the Strange Academy kids, there are a couple that I really enjoyed and fell in love with. And I'm really kind of excited to see some really big focus on maybe some particular players that came out of that book. Zoe's one of those characters that I really initially fell in love with her design. I thought she was interesting. And as I was reading more about her, I was like, this is a cool chick. Like, I'm down for this. And there are parts of me that I really enjoy about this story. And there are parts of me that I'm a little more hesitant about where I really wish that maybe we could have tried to push some, and I talk about this all the time, about pushing boundaries, pushing elements of story, pushing creativity, and maybe there are some better and different things we can do here to really help give this character a unique focus story. When it came to Midnight Suns, I really was not expecting us to take a trip to the Strange Academy. I was This was not in my mind. I was like, especially at the beginning of the story, we're like, okay, this is following a fairly normal uh, normal plot that you kind of expect and then when we get to strange academy i was like oh well this is fascinating especially with the advent of the death of dr strange i was really interested to see okay well what are what's going on here and i like like i said before there are parts of this that i like and there are parts of it that i don't know if i'm fully on board with it yet i will say i think i may be looking for a little bit more in terms of um you know the the this kind of story that we're kind of getting right now where it's just like someone has a dark vision and everyone's afraid of her and oh no but then you know the one character that uh, that like i don't know is the most suspicious out of everybody we've seen so far agatha harkness is there and it's like i will protect this child and then it's like oh well does agatha have good intentions or bad intentions where, where are we at with agatha right now why would you ever be suspicious of agatha well i mean <laughs> she was the world's best nanny she <laughs> took some good ass care of franklin and you know and she was somehow the best teacher wanda ever had so like if you're kind of of like someone if you're like an at-risk marvel hero <laughs> agatha is the person for you um but you know i just want to also throw
throw in there that there are so many incredible women in this book. And while I am disappointed, there are no amazing women on the creative team. I really appreciated seeing Nico. Hey, what's up, girl? I really loved seeing Kushala makes me want to holla. I loved seeing the commandingness of Ileana in yellow. Like Ileana yes. Goldeny. So cute. So good. Do that color palette swap. I'm here for it. The one thing I will say that I'm reserving judgment on, we all knew this was coming. In future issues, hot bitchification of Agatha Harkness to fall more in line with the hottest bitch, Catherine Hahn. A little weird. It feels like, I mean, I get the synergistic aspect of like, you know, you want it, you want her to be recognizable, but I also feel a little bit like nobody can be ugly. Nobody can be old. The hot bitchification is the best thing ever. But but she is old. Exactly. But she's not allowed to look it because that's unattractive to us. So remember, even your mass murdering sorcerers always need to be hot. And if they can't be hot, you stick them in a mask and fuck them from behind. (laughs) And, you know, it just that is what it feels like. Like, obviously, we have to do this. And like I said, I get there's a there's a synergy aspect. You really want her to look like who we've. I mean, Catherine Hunt knocked it out of the park. I love that we will see something that references that amazing amazing character portrayal it just there is for me a little bit of like was there any like could that be like a a disguise form or any just anything other than like of course we don't want to follow her for many issues if she's old i had the same problem when they dh destiny when they brought her back too i was like oh that was a travesty i was like uh let there be some old hero characters like i need i need somebody who i can be like hey cool you know like look she's she's not a young you know she's not in her 20s anymore who is sarah paulson gonna be attracted to (laughs) (laughs) i know that whole thing ruins my whole like fan casting of sarah paulson as mystique into holland taylor as destiny like honestly we 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 need more characters like horticulture even if we have to spell it with a w come on let's do this (laughs) i want to see like old feisty characters because you can make them old and sexy god damn it and you can make them you know old and feisty and very capable we've literally seen it happen with male characters we learn nothing from the golden girls you can be old and sexy i'm looking at you blanche right right hello betty white like Uh, you know the and like we've had very competent amazing elderly women in comic books horticulture is a fantastic example of like villainous older women who just crush it they are so good i love them and i'm like i just i want to see this as heroes as well like don't shy away from making older people sexy or older especially older women don't shy away from making them the heroes that you so easily make men like they they have worth they have skills hell they probably have more skills than a lot of the men they're just on the subtle side versus the i'm gonna blow shit up side i'm with you my type is you know 55 year old bottoms so like i think (laughs) that like old men are real hot and i think it's time to celebrate old ladies too it's just you know there's more of us out there than you think and um (laughs) 
go. Wow. Similarly, I it still is really disappointing that there are no fat superheroes. Like, mm-hmm. there are so many – because the argument I have always heard when I bring it up is like, well, if you're a superhero, you have to be athletic. And one, you can be athletic and fat. Two, if you are the world's greatest psychic, no, you don't necessarily have to have 0% body fat. There's a lot that you can accomplish at a larger size. And I just think there are these moments where there's, of course, there's always, you, 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 they couldn't be old because the, you know, they, then they won't be able to move around enough. It's fucking magic. There's a mm-hmm. solution. My psychic powers shut down when my BMI gets too high. Oh no. <laughs> the worst Doc Samson spinoff of all time. That's why I always love there was this arc, Eva Destruction, right? Jean Grey, like, to Polly Provincia or whatever, like, says, oh, will you like me in my real form? And it's, like, older, larger Jean Grey. And I'm like, that should be what Jean Grey really looks like. Yeah, I mean, I just think we're good. We're fine. We no longer have to subscribe to this idea that aesthetics are only one thing and a class of body type is the only one we need to see. And the only time we see other ones is if you are a mutant who whose power is being fat, or if you are, you know, the old crone who has shown up to deliver prophecy, we're okay. We can have the one of the baddest fighters on a team be an old woman. That's There's a solution to it. Don't worry. And yeah, I mean, like, I'm still totally stoked. I just, it made me think broadly that I'm really ready to see a stark change in this kind of thing. Last week, I read the wrong book because my brain was so set on reading a scary old lady, a.k.a. murder hobo auntie, a.k.a. Cassandra Nova, that my brain was just like, I need this, I need this character. I need this character in my life. So I ended up like, (laughs) I ended up reading the wrong book because I wanted that change. I did, I, my brain didn't want to necessarily read the, the characters that have already been established but are always young. I needed old, slightly crazy murder auntie who scares the living shit out of me. Even though she is a very elderly woman, she is terrifying. And that's what I want to see. This is that's I need more of that. I need more variety of people who can embody like attitudes and feelings and who have a difference in their body or their age or, you know, and it's it's not just tied to, oh yeah, your power is time, so we're gonna make you an old lady kind of thing or you know you know what I mean you know what I mean and I'm really with you on that and I want to wow I guess I've never thought about something and this is one of those moments where like you know when you hear a song and it's like that was always my feelings and now I can listen to this song and I can channel how to deal with that I've kind of always wondered why we are so ready to deal with problematic faiths like I know there's characters whose histories make me cringe they're actually when we talk about how good Shatterstar's queer history is we're really not talking about how good Shatterstar's queer history is. My husband and I were having a conversation the other day about how actually, if you go back and look at it, Men's on Film is one of the more progressive depictions of queer people in like stand up from that time. And it's because the actors let themselves be feminine and non-masculine in their performance without it being insulting. It was about doing a portrayal. And, you know, so it got me thinking about the nature of problematic faves and Raven, you're 
you're so right. There's only one old lady on the X-Men. So if you want that old lady, you have to look the other way. And that's how I feel about Nico Minoru. I will always be very, very, very attached to her and very connected to her because I came of age. I was literally her age at the time she was that age. I was a Nico who was 16 years old who felt like the whole world was super villains out to destroy him. And I was queer and I was confused. And yeah, you know what? When I look back, she was a cutter and that's not a storytelling device we need. But that doesn't come to mind for me. What comes to mind is there was a Nico who knew what I was going through as someone othered. And when all you have is that one, man, you've really got to be good about ignoring the problems. Wow. Who knew this book was so deep? I think all of us did deep down inside. I mean, I do think that it did it by nature of what it is when it's coming out, the connection to the game it is leaving so much room for new and different discussions like this. Well, and let's talk Kushala for a minute. Kushala mm. is like one of the greatest things that ever happened to the Marvel Universe ever. Yes. And there was an amazing story for Kushala, Spirit Rider. If those of you who enjoyed our recent Werewolf by Night coverage want to check that out, it's really an amazing story. It's got Taboo and B. Earl, and it's, it's a beautiful story. Kushala is part Sorcerer Supreme, part Spirit of Vengeance, and she's a Native woman, and she just sort of goes when and where she wants in canon and I love her and I know I think everybody in this room has some experience with Kushala and I would love to get your guys reaction to seeing her part of a team which is a huge change for her and probably only possible because Robbie's erstwhile detained so he can't be the ghostwriter from the game so I'm gonna start I don't have any previous experience with Kushala I really need to now especially after reading this I I have limited I have limited experience with Kushala because I read uh, some of the Dr. Strange and Sorcerer's Brain. I was about to say, I know that that's something that we both love and like you've actually read like half of her appearances then. Oh, okay. That's a shame because she actually is a really cool character. <laughs> outside of that in this, I haven't really read anything of her and you know, like I, I want to know more and I hope we get a lot more of her character in this series because she's really, really, really fucking cool. <laughs> Agreed. I, I want to see more of her because we, we've, we've seen seen that her life does span quite a bit of time um and i love the idea of yes she was the source of supreme but also she got <laughs> smacked with you know the ghostwriter you know spirit of vengeance kind of thing so you have this this tie together so i i want to see how those two power sets work together like more because i don't like huh, i hate to say this i don't feel like i've actually seen her realize the full potential of the powers that have been given to her she 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 often feels like a, a bit more of a background character who were like, oh yeah, Sorcerer Supreme and Spirit of Vengeance, but we're not going to show you how crazy that could actually get. And I'm like, I want somebody to lean in and really use this character, but I'm also really worried because, like, not a knock to the design, but like, she shows up on this motorcycle with a skull on the front of it, but it looks more like a cattle skull. So I'm just, I'm like, they're trying to tie her Native American heritage in and I just I like I think we were talking about this in the green room and I very much agree I need to do a bit more research on if they did their research because I'm like I love the design it looks really cool but I also really hope it's not just here we put out this design but we didn't actually consult you know somebody who is Native American to make sure that we're not putting out something that's actually just stereotype or trope or, or whatnot because I, I want this character to do so well because I like her yeah you know Nico you made me get into Daredevil when I swore I would never get into Daredevil 
Daredevil, and I was like, okay, that's fine. Daredevil, but never again. And now I'm like deep into Punisher and Ghost Rider, and I have opinions on favorite Ghost Riders, and this is my opinion that this is my favorite Ghost Rider. I, I can't ever forgive you for what you've done to me. But goddamn, do I love Kushala. She's so cool. And this is my gift to you. Yeah. Blessing and cur- death is my gift. Thank you. Um, Kushala, I, uh, Raven, I completely agree with what you said insofar as I don't think we have seen the limit of her power or the extent to which it's bonkers that you can be a spirit of vengeance and the Sorcerer Supreme. And on the one hand, she has enough appearances that it's probably time. On the other, the fact that we haven't seen it to me is and can still be a good thing because I think that is something that I want to see. I I want there to be a real spotlight on her and I want it to be about her, whether it's in, you know, a Midnight Suns arc that she is the POV character or the, the kind of the main protagonist of it, or whether it's an entirely new story. I love that some of the most work and some of the best work about Kushala has been done by Taboo, who is a native creator. Let's up it. Give us Darcy Little, Little Badger. Give us Rebecca Roanhorse. There are native women creators who are poised to write this character and give us a voice that really honors the very cool setup, regardless of who created it. Very cool setup for a character. Makes a ton of sense. And this idea, Nico what you said that she just kind of goes wherever she wants you know her last big appearance before this she's supposed to go back in time and like get back to her time period and write everything and she's just like nah i'm just gonna stick around and now it just feels like she can kind of just do whatever she wants and i love that for this character i'm really ready to see some voices that can match the potential of this screen and that's not to say Ethan Sachs is not but i've got other people in mind for sure so I was really excited to see Kushala here. I think she's a really cool character. I'm with Nico, and Nico nonstop talks about his love for Kushala. And for majority of, of Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider affiliates, but Kushala is, you know, very, very near and dear to his heart. So by proxy, she is near and dear to my heart. So I was really excited to see her here. I was really excited in general. I think that to see a character like this kind of even take almost a leading role. To harken back to something that Nico said a little bit earlier, that not that this isn't a fantastic creative team, but with so many women in this title and so many female characters, it might help to have some input from a woman, you know, multiple women, and we want to encourage as many women to get into comics in general. But I think, especially for a title like this, if you're going to have so many characters like that, I think that that perspective would really help further bring these characters to a place of really great characterization and well-roundedness. I do have some reservations with this cast in the sense that I do think that a little more diversity would help with bring these voices to light but that doesn't take away that in a crossover title we have some really fantastic characters that i think do really great things for representation kushala herself i think has one of the most interesting designs i've seen and uh, just her story in general i think is one that should be told more and should be pushed to the forefront so i'm really kind of excited and kind of hope she gets to take a little bit more of a leadership role in this because i think that would be really excellent and amazing and of course there could be no discussion of this book without taking a brief detour to just say, Ileana, I don't know when you became the new Wolverine, but we welcome you and your, you know, we welcome you, our great overlord sword lord, uh, to all of the titles. Seeing Ileana in every book just makes sense. And I really felt that the book was greater for 
its inclusion of her. I love Blade, but any appearance of Blade without Boy Thing is a waste of my time. <laughs> and Boy Thing, so cool. Oh, he's so cool. So I just want to thank you guys for coming out. Did you guys have any final thoughts on Midnight Suns that you guys want to share before we get ready to doom ourselves with the second issue? I was not expecting to see Doom here, though I guess I, as Wolverine or whoever put it, if there's something magical afoot, Doom kind of sticks his business into everything. I just, uh, you know, hope that he doesn't end up marrying anybody out of this. <laughs> oh, Lord. I will continue to talk about Agatha Harkness Doom uh, romance that we've always dreamed of. There's things that we would maybe all have liked to see different or, you know, some things that we're waiting to see how it's going to pan out. I, I thought this was a good setup issue. I did like the tongue-in-cheekness of just bringing Logan in because like, oh, hey, Logan was in this vision, so let me go bring him in. Fits Wolverine so much. Like, as a character, just to have that be the way. I can't wait to see where this is going. You know, I can't wait to see what this does to the current date of Marvel Magic Books and and I am just on board for the ride. On board for the ride. I definitely want to see more from this book. I know I've known some of these characters for a while, so it's going to take me a little bit to like readjust to how they're being used in this book. But there's so much good potential, and there were so many like good moments of you know, oh, okay, so they're they're all having this this vision, and and some people are dragged there because they have to be, and they don't know what's going on. But some people are like, no, nah, this is where I need to be, and I'm like, okay, I want to see how this goes how how their personalities come forward how each character gets used and the fact that she threw doom in it y'all know that i love to hate on doom so this is going to be so much fun for me also particularly exciting because kushala and doom had a great uh ongoing game of cat and mouse going in one of kushala's last big storylines so yeah just overall i'm really excited i'm excited to see the strange academy verse expand out into other things being able to, even if we focus on a character like Zoe, have Desi be a part of it a little bit tangentially, really super cool. These characters have had a lot of time to develop, and I do want to see more Strange Academy, but I'm excited about them expanding into other spheres. In general, I just think this book is really poised to give us some stuff that if we haven't, if, if it's stuff that we already had before, it's been a while and it's being served to us in a unique way. Um, horror, fantasy, dark magic at Marvel. That we're, this is a new renaissance for that stuff. And I think this book is an important part of where that's going to go. And I just, I see nothing but potential. I'm so excited. Hey everybody, it's Nico again. And I'm TK. And I am beyond words excited to talk about this next topic. All right, so TK, did you ever read Savage Avengers? No, I did not. All right. Well, a trillion billion years ago, when X is for Podcast was first in its Krakoan age infancy, with a number of contributors who are actually no longer with the show, we took a look at parts of Savage Avengers, and one of the big things was that we couldn't help but notice some of the oddities surrounding Savage Avengers. And as TK, Nathan, and I are sort of coming to an unbelievable conclusion on Jason Aaron's Avengers, I was thinking about what are we going to cover next? And I was like, you know, Savage Avengers, that might be a really fun one to go back to. Our original coverage had us laughing uproariously at Kulan Gath and his desire for buckets of blood. And there is a real magic to this book. But man, if you think there's a magic to Savage Avengers as a title, as it exists, 
exists initially by Jerry Dugan, then you will be mind blown by the behind the scenes that went into this book or maybe just parts of this book. I can't get enough of talking about this, but TK, I asked you about Savage Avengers. What about Sword and Sorcery Cox? That is a little before my time as a comic collector. I was peak 90s kid and that just wasn't something that I had access to at the time. So it is something that as an adult, I've gone back and looked at a little. I find it a very interesting artifact. I found it really interesting when Conan started showing up in Marvel Comics again in the present, but it was not part of my comic collecting past as a kid. So I talk a lot about my dad's influence on me as a comic reader because, you know, he had a lot, but there were other comic book influences in my life. And one of them was an uncle who read an awful lot of the sword and sorcery, large scale format, black and white magazines. And so I always had a decently healthy understanding of what they were. But when I sat down to try and understand the bigger picture, I didn't realize quite the journey that I was in for. Now, when I think Conan, I think, you know, fully open about using Royd's Arnold in 82, 84. I think some Grace Jones. But like, I think most 90s kids, I go a little bit to Conan the Adventurer, you know, with Needle the Phoenix. And it was a super fun animated series that ran on syndicated channels for those in the New York area. It ran on WPIX at 6 a.m. And it was a very cartoony, but man, did that Conan of Chimera really imprint on me, like directly sexually. And uh, there was a super cool mystic guy named Grey Wolf, and he was awesome. And there were magic shurikens, and there was nothing about this show I didn't love, except for like, I guess the barbarian parts. Like if this could have just been modern, it would have totally been my favorite. But, you know, did you ever have any experience with Conan in other formats before this? I think pretty similar to you, although the cartoon was not huge for me, really, at the end of the day. The only one that I can really remember and hold on to is X-Men the Animated Series. But I do remember the Phoenix that was obsessed with pomegranates, and then I was super into pomegranates for some reason. That was very special to me. I don't know what's going on. But I remember that. Of course, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I mean, the two things that I now am kind of pulling it all together as a Marvel thing were the Cool and Gath story with Celine and the X-Men. Like, that's a classic, and that's one I've always been aware of, and I knew somewhere that, like, Cool and Gath is like Conan trivia at that point for me. Like, I don't really understand what all the connections are, but I know that that's there. And then relatively recently, it was Avengers No Road Home. So there is so much to talk about bridging these ideas, right? Conan had an incredible run at Marvel in the 70s, and then all of a sudden, he disappears in the 90s, shows up again for a hot minute in the 2000-ish era, and we wind up with Conan jumping into the Marvel Universe after reacquiring the rights in 2018, starting with new titles in January of 2019. And we are sitting currently in October of 2022, just about 60 days from Marvel giving up the license on Conan again. And I'm staggered by this. I just kept thinking, we're in an age where Marvel is starting to really trade on purchasable characters in a way that I don't know that I find it distasteful, but I don't mind Disney as a company adding things to their metaverse that Star Wars and Marvel could both exist under the same corporate umbrella, which would inevitably lead to problematic synergy. That doesn't bother me conceptually for the fiction, not perhaps the way acquiring 
having a character, inserting them into the canon, and then potentially removing them later kind of really bothers me. I think that's the thing that's really taken me back about all of this is that I went pretty hard for that No Road Home story, and I thought it was really cool that they had acquired this character and they were putting in some real legwork. And like, there are some amazing writers on No Road Home, and it's a big, weird story. And, you know, we we talked about Angela in our MC2 coverage a few weeks ago. I really think it's fascinating when Marvel puts in the work to fold in a character that wasn't necessarily theirs to begin with. And it seemed like they were, they really had a buy-in with Conan. And No Road Home is, I think, 2019. So three years later, after reading this book, where I'm like, oh, I guess he's really part of the Marvel Universe now. I should like expect that he'll be an Avenger or something. He's heading out, out to, being put out to pasture. And the picture it paints is one of such complexity. We've talked a bit about Angela in our MC2 coverage over with Asgardians of the Galaxy, a title I know our future and previous Savage Avengers cohort Nathan is a big fan of as well. And we're inevitably going to talk about Marvel versus DC and Amalgam Comics because that's a thing we're all kind of nuts about. And Marvel and DC both own equal parts to Axis, the character Axel Asher, who was the focal point of that comic crossover that ultimately led to the all-Axis multiple miniseries that would follow and you know I think part of it is because there is this dual existing character neither company really wants to be the one to use him we've also spoken a little bit about characters like John Amon who are part of public domain that Marvel continues to use in some capacity regardless but Conan represents a character that Marvel has had and lost and then had and then lost and now have had and lost again and when I think big name properties that you want to acquire I don't know I would think that Marvel would be more interested in adding hot rods as superheroes a la Hot Wheels becoming the Avengers than they would Conan and I was so pressed to understand why they would do this why they would buy this character four years ago just to let the character lapse this year and then I looked where I love to look and I did a little bit of research on the usage of Conan at Marvel in the last four years and what I came to find was that Conan himself probably didn't appear as much as Conan would go on to be reprinted. Now, the Marvel Omnibus line is something we talk about a lot here on X's for Podcasts. They represent the cleanest, largest, I guess, simplified way to physically possess these books. Now, from 2019 to 2022, Marvel Comics would go on to release 27 Omnibus editions, including the Savage Avengers and Conan. In 2019, they released four Omnibus editions featuring Conan. In 2020, they released five. In 2021, they released seven or eight, depending on how you want to look at it. And in 2022, they will have released a staggering 10 omnibus editions featuring Conan, totaling almost 10,000 pages in 2022 alone. I mean, it's a twofold insane thing. One, that they are publishing that many omnibuses. Two, that there's that much Conan content that they're able to. Well, I don't think that they actually are publishing that many omnibus editions. Like, not to be throwing anybody under the bus, but like by far, Conan is the sluttiest with his omnibusy <laughs> because what we're looking at is the fact that Marvel released a Conan related omnibus edition every five weeks in 2022. That's a hundred dollar book every five weeks. Yeah, that's, that's insane. really insane. Yeah, there's no other word for it. And I think part of what we need to do to understand this is take a look at how Conan amassed over 400 issues 
Comics from 1970 to 1993, and without the rights to Conan, Marvel couldn't do anything with them. So I want to start a little bit by taking a look at the fact that Conan the Barbarian was originally a fiction character created by Robert E. Howard, and it's sort of a funny story because the character of Conan alone isn't what we're here to discuss, but we're here to discuss the bigger look at interrelated and interpolated sword and sorcery concepts at Marvel. Now, it goes back to a moment in Marvel's history where Roy Thomas, who would go on to write issues 100, issue 1 to 115 and 240 to 275 of Conan the Barbarian, he was looking to do a licensed story and the company wasn't sure what they wanted to do. They were trying to do characters like Doc Savage. They wanted to do things from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings verse. They were looking to work with Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan and John Carter of Mars. And what funny enough happened was they didn't think they could afford Conan. They only had $150 per issue they could pay for the rights. And they felt that Conan was already too popular in paperback and they could never afford it. And they instead wanted to use was a character by a creator named Lynn Carter, who was someone who Roy Thomas knew. And this character's name was Thongor. And Thongor, it turns out, was a name that Stan Lee liked. Oh, sure. So Marvel went ahead and actually did try to ultimately do Thongor stories. Thongor would appear, sure enough, in Marvel Creatures on the Loose, issues 22 to 29. Now, originally, the book was called, like, The Tower of Shadows, and it was a different kind of horror book. Ultimately, Marvel Unlimited doesn't pick up Creatures on the Loose till issue 30. That's going to be a huge running theme through our discussion. How little of this is accessible outside of these omnibus editions because of the rights they do and don't have to these characters. So I find the idea that Marvel was just looking to build on properties and build out an idea, such a central part of what Marvel was looking to do for so many years. And we actually see this continue throughout the sort of bevy of characters we're going to discuss today. We're going to be taking a look at Conan, who has not just 125 plus Marvel Universe appearances, but over 700 appearances in his own timeline known as the Hyborian Age of Comics. So this guy's got like a thousand appearances to himself at this point. We're going to be taking a look at Cull, the Conqueror of Atlantis, who has five Marvel Universe appearances on top of nearly 120 Hyborian Age appearances. A character named Solomon Kane, who I don't even know what to do with this one. We're going to talk about it, but the fact that this guy got an omnibus, I'm going to go out and buy it just for the sheer this exists alone. I was really sure when I clicked the link that there was something wrong and whoever the weird Puritan wizards from DC and Clarion Witchboy, I was like, that's that's one of those dudes. This is wrong. I I really yeah. had to stare at it for a while to be like, no, this is, oh, they did it too. Okay. Yeah. We're going to briefly discuss Thongor, who I've already mentioned, who has the best name. <clears throat> Stan was right. We're going to take a look at Red Sonia. Now, many people are like, oh, Red Sonia, that's that dynamite chick. And yeah, she is over at Dynamite Comics now, but it is of note that Red Sonia was at Marvel longer than Conan originally, with Conan ceasing publication at Marvel in 1993 and Red Sonia going on to have Red Sonia the Destroyer in 1995. 
1995, closing out her time at Marvel, before her ultimate return to the pages of Marvel's Dynamite crossover, Spider-Man Red Sonja, which saw the return of Kulan Gath. We're also going to be mentioning Elric of Milneborn, because number one, sounds like my favorite French card game. Number two, I this guy has like so many fucking wiki references and so many things that link back to this guy that I had to be like, am I sure this is something people care about? They do. In addition, I also want to talk about a couple of Marvel lines that we've danced around, but I'd like to shine a bit of a spotlight on them. That's going to be the Marvel Comics Super Special line, which ran from June of 1977 all the way through to November of 1986. And there's always time to talk a little Epic Illustrated because these two lines are actually super necessary to discussing the state of affairs for Conan, Cull, Sonya, and the rest. We're also going to be taking a look at some maybe lesser known concepts like the Namedian Chronicles, as well as the handful of vague sort of, I think they might have even been occasionally problematic appearances of Conan at Marvel. So let's let's dive in. TK, were you aware that there was something like 2000 Sword and Sorcery comics at Marvel that were just sitting in a box? Not even a little bit. Not surprised, but I was not aware. Well, I am thrilled to go over this material with you. And I want to start where it all kind of started for Marvel with Conan. While initially they were unsure about securing the rights to this character, he is a pretty major worldwide phenomena in a lot of ways. He is actually a public domain character in Europe as of like 2022, which is probably a factor in why Marvel wasn't interested in re-upping the rights. That gave them a pretty definitive time frame to get these stories out. And when you see just how many appearances Conan has had over the years at Marvel, it is pretty unbelievable that we're talking about a character that couldn't be used for 20 years, 25 years. That's crazy. And it's crazy because the association with Marvel really, I think for most people, is only coming up in these last few years, since about 2019. And I think we can all be aware intellectually that this was something Marvel had the rights to, but it doesn't feel like a Marvel property in the same way. Now, to try and discuss Conan's canon is borderline impossible when the character has so many hundreds of appearances, and so many of them are so heavy with prose, right? It's a little bit more complicated than any one podcast could cover in 10 episodes. So rather than make everything a little too complicated, I want to sort of give a general statement about something known as the Nemedian Chronicles. The Nemedian Chronicles were the way in which Conan's adventures were recounted, right? They were written by the Nemedian Academy of Belovarus in the capital of Nemedia, where the young scribe Nikos was responsible for writing down all of Conan's adventures. Now, one of the things that does come up in this discussion is Conan's personal timeline is kind of flawed in the way he tells it. So there are things such as Ren Sonia going on an adventure with Conan when she would have been about like 60 years old and other stories say she would have been dead by then. So there is something to the fact that Conan's adventures become kind of hard to pin down in their grandeur. And there are so many outside factors like where Marvel's Conan differs from the original stories about the character by Howard. But man, it is unbelievable to me that even with this character's own line and own huge success, we still had four appearances, more or less, of Conan in Marvel 616 canon 
Ant-Man before he officially joined the Marvel Universe in 2019. In September of 1989, The Punisher Annual Number 2's D story, which is currently available on Marvel Unlimited, it's pages 27 and 28 of that issue, shows just like a brief flashback that kind of deals with Conan. Later that same year, Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme Number 11 has a four to five page story showing a brief flashback to that era and explaining much of the complex magic that went into the Hyborian Age's transfer of magic into the modern age, sort of like the same things that Claremont pulled on for Kulan Gath. Sure, and this one's a little ridiculous. Thor Core number three from November of 1993. There's a one-page Conan appearance. It's by Tom DeFalco. Of course course it is. is. Of course it is. Well, then you're going to be really surprised to know that in well after they no longer had the Conan rights, in October of 1995 in Fantastic Four number 405 by Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan on page is 12 to 14 there's like a time machine alternate universe mishap that just fucking pulls actual conan to the present but they didn't have the rights i think they might have just avoided calling him conan the barbarian they might have called him a barbarian but like it's clearly conan and the fact that they reference these stories when he's not in canon definitely kept coming up they did not shy away from acknowledging the hyborian age but they didn't lean too hard into directly using i don't know man i mean like i said that x-men story is legendary but that x-men story is such a unique exception. That's true. It is the only appearances of Kulan Gath with the the handful of like questionable exceptions. It is a major creator at the top of his game running a gambit. Now, for all that Conan is well known at Marvel, it might be lesser known that a number of Conan's side characters got their own things, such as the unbelievable, and I had no idea this guy was real, Kull. So Conan of Samara, and then there's Kull of Volusia. And he is very similar similar to Conan, but he's 8,000 years later, right? And the major theme here is that Kull is some sort of Grand Atlantean. Not even sure how to explain this, but he's an Atlantean in a way that could not possibly be Marvel's Atlantis. And his story is very much more in that same barbarian sort of sword and sorcery comic line. It's unbelievable to me that this character that I feel most people might not even have heard of is so significant to Marvel's understanding that he received 1,500 pages of Omnibus Edition in the year 2021. That's just nuts. Well, and what's crazy is I'm saying that this character is somehow related to Conan when one of my points is he's literally 8,000 years earlier. So who is this guy? Well, because he was another character who was created by Robert E. Howard from the Conan mythos, he was would go on to appear in a number of Conan's stories, such as Savage Sword of Conan, as a backup feature. So a number of these characters are sort of like related properties that Marvel just kept banging around a drawer. And it's really crazy to think that in the 1970s, Sword and Sorcery comics outsold the X-Men. And I mean Claremont's X-Men. Yeah, I guess that doesn't actually surprise me that much. For me, it's surprising because there's so little historiography on it. Like, you know, Keva was asked asking me, my husband Kevo, show producer, we was like, why are you doing this? Though? If this is like thousands of comics that can't be read, why are you doing this? Why are you spending so much time on this research? Because it makes me sad that art disappears. Because it makes me sad that this art existed. And it paid someone's bills and it was part of this company. And it's part of the grand tradition of Marvel storytelling. And it creates a picture of how comics haven't always just been one genre. Even if we do a superhero noir story, it's still a superhero story. And I'll admit, Sword and Sword sorcery has a lot in common with superhero comics, but there is a fundamental difference in the structure
structure and the narrative, the size, the fact that so many of these were designed for black and white, the things that weren't designed for black and white had a different aesthetic about them. There is a value to this art, even if it's to look at it and say, that's why it's not still successful today. But I'm not talking about harping on six issues of Spellbound for the rest of my <laughs> life. I'm saying that I think something like a couple thousand comics by Marvel that paid bills for these creators, for the company, that inspired so many people, that inspired so many creators that were eager to work on these characters in 2018, 2019, the years that Conan was at Dark Horse, the years Red Sonja has spent at Dynamite. They mean something. And the history that shapes the industry means something. And the fact that Solomon Kane in August of 2020 got a 625-page omnibus edition featuring actual Marvel canon stories. The guy fought Dracula. <clears throat> and we just don't know about it. There's something worth investigating. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I really do think it's fascinating. I, I mean, and clearly there's something worth paying attention to because Marvel decided to print all of this stuff. You know, you don't print omnibuses if you don't think people are going to buy them. And clearly there is an audience that remembers this stuff, wants to collect it. There could be an audience of people that would like to visit it for the first time as adults with disposable income. There's a lot there worth looking at. Which does bring us to Solomon Kane, who might have been, you know, like I found myself sort of like, oh my God, this Thongor thing. I can't stop saying Thongor. But Solomon Kane fascinated me more than most other characters. He is a 1530s Puritan who is like a demon hunter. And I could not believe that he is actually a Robert Howard character. <laughs> the character has some 40 appearances, and while most of them run through things like Cull and the Barbarians, Savage Sword of Conan, and his very own Solomon Kane series, he did also have appearances in books like Dracula, Monsters Unleashed, Marvel Premiere, and even Doctor Strange. So this Solomon Kane character is a really complicated element because he was still referenced even when he didn't appear but this character I think perhaps is completely forgotten to talk. Yeah I mean this is one some of these characters I'm, the names are very familiar and I'm aware of stuff this is not one of those. Yeah and you know it's stuff like he flayed heretics mm. yeah you know a little mm. a little troubling <laughs> and uh, you know what are you gonna do with it? but this idea that this character existed at all had some 40 something appearances fought Dracula twice sure this guy existed and that's even my point you know I made a joke I made a Mary Hartman Mary Hartman joke the other day on air that's a show from the 70s I don't know why I make those jokes who are these references for you know Solomon Kane his 41 appearances in the Marvel Universe printing this who was it for there had to be an audience that wanted to read this and I really hope they find this episode and they connect with us and they want to talk because like you dude when I found this Solomon Kane guy I was convinced I was researching wrong yeah like it's it doesn't feel on brand for Marvel anyway like on top of the fact that you could say that none of the sword and sorcery stuff does but that, this doesn't feel like sword and sorcery in the first place so and then you know it loops so far off brand that it goes back and you're like oh I could see this dude being relevant in a 1602 book or I could see him like hunting down mutants sure yeah exactly like yeah like there's potential for these characters yeah I mean it's a ton of really interesting ideas like even just the idea that there's an Atlantis that somehow predates the one that we know from Namor the idea that these barbarian dudes all come from like places like mythical places like Atlantis Lemuria the timeline of it the fact that there are these ages like we've been going back to 1 million BC with the Avengers the X-Men are going back even further than that like we're getting 
into the distant past and the times that nobody remembers and can't really think of. And the fact that these people already existed and had all these adventures, <clears throat> the fact that these people all existed and had these adventures in times that are kind of considered lost to modern day, like in-universe characters, it's very interesting to pull them back up for any reason. I also think it has to do with how many of these characters have existed at multiple publishing houses. I don't know how Marvel could ever try and republish their Red Sonja stories. And that might even be why they did. It's not that Red Sonja wasn't a significant element of the Marvel stable with like 120 appearances. But I think with Dynamite's Red Sonja being, you know, like, I don't know, superhero comics Kim Petras, it's sort of hard to fight that that slutty queen rules what she does. And what she does is, you know, she sluts real good. And I think with so much of Red Sonja being tied up in this sort of tawdry sexuality, which I'm fine with. I'm not judging tawdry sexuality. Let's all be tawdry and slutty together. I'm really fascinated to know that unlike Cull or Conan or Solomon Kane, Red Sonja technically isn't the Robert E. Howard character. The Red Sonja of Marvel Comics is Red Sonja with a J, but not where you think. And she was created by Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith for the story The Shadow of the Vulture in 1973's Conan the Barbarian 23. However, she is based in part on Robert E. Howard's Red Sonia with a Y, pedestrianly where you think, of Rogatino, who is actually the main character of The Shadow of the Vulture, the original prose story from 1934. And now I love that you fucking threw this at me in the middle of recording. You blew my mind. <laughs> the other character she gets her credit from is Dark Agnes de Chastelon, who somehow did not come up in my research until you sent me this, and now I'm obsessed with her. Yep. Oh, she's amazing. And I will admit, part of where I did not know about her before this is she technically only has six appearances. They're in Conan the Serpent War 1 through 4, and her own series, Dark Agnes, of which she has two appearances. But she is responsible for Red Sonia in a cool way 40 years later. There's a really fascinating kind of give and take when you're adapting characters. So I think looking at how many of these characters are so... And funny enough, Dark Agnes issues three through five were COVID canceled. I'm not shocked so by that. They were supposed to exist. There's covers. They were solicited. Well, I'm now obsessed with this Dark Agnes thing because this is amazing. I love that she is super dichedelic and she's everything I could want. I mean, it's amazing. And it's just like, I'm just kind of sitting here following along with what we're talking about and doing a little bit of clicking through links just to confirm that I've got my ducks in a row when you will literally accidentally click on something and come to this whole other corner of this property, um, you know, like like Dark Agnes and the fact that this the Serpent War story is a modern Marvel comic that features Moon Knight and Solomon Kane and Dark Agnes and Conan. And that's just insane. <laughs> It, it really is because like this character Elric the Eighth kept coming up and evidently he is based on a character Elric of Milnenborn who was created by Michael Moorcock for the short story The Dreaming City in 1961 this character is from a different fictional universe but because Michael Moorcock the creator of the character was part of the story they creating the Conan story 
great. They they stuck him in there. Oh my God. But what's interesting is this was actually part of an attempt to do more stories with this character, which they ultimately chose not to do. But then I do need to point this out. This character is evidently a worshiper of a creature named Ariok, who despite the fact that this character only has three appearances ever, he is referenced so many times. <clears throat> he is also Shuma Gorath's first lieutenant. I can't get over this. He was an angel living in heaven. Gotta know. Does he know Angela's bitch of a mom? Like, <clears throat> this is everything to me. And this character legitimately looks like Morph from the Exiles cosplaying a elf. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm looking right now. It's an apt description. So I couldn't help but notice that a couple of titles kept coming up in my research for these characters as I was trying to get a better understanding of this complex publishing world that you and I are just like barely towing. And by the way, my notes for this, my Conan research, I'm going to make it available on the website. It's going to be attached to the posts for this so that people can get some of these links down because this is some fucking material, guys. And I found myself drawn back to a line that we've discussed a few times here on Access for Podcast specifically myself and TK, I found myself looking at Epic Comics and Epic Comics then drew me to the Marvel Comics Super Specials. Now, I got to Epic in particular because Eric of Milneborn did ultimately go on to have a few Epic appearances. While researching Epic, I found out that Epic, which was originally going to be titled Odyssey before they found out they would have had trouble securing the copyright, Odyssey was going to be like a one-issue special of Marvel Comics Super Special before they decided to make it its own title, and then ultimately its own line of comics. So I want to start with the Marvel Comics Super Specials first, because we've talked about this series a few times, but I don't know that I have ever, for one motherfucking second, gone hard enough on how crazy this book was. It's an anthology. It's a tie-in anthology. Sure, fine, fine. Who doesn't love a good tie-in anthology? The whole idea was Marvel could do special magazine format stories for other things and get people to buy Marvel Comics that normally wouldn't, which is why issues one and five are Kiss, like the band, like, you know, Knights in Satan's Service, Kiss, like the guys who wear so much makeup, you'd think they technically have to be drag queens, except for all the spandex, because no drag queen is gay enough to wear that much spandex, you know what I mean? So then issues four and seven were the Beatles? What? What the fuck is this book? Well, I bring this all up because Conan is responsible for issues two, nine, 21, and 35, as well as an appearance from Red Sonja in issue 38. Now, okay, all right. I've said to you that there is the modern appearances of Conan. I've said to you there are the Hyborian appearances of Conan, but are you ready for the Conan movie-verse, the third universe of Conan stories at Marvel? This one, based on the films by Arnold Schwarzenegger from 1982 and 1984, but visually meant to look like the Conan from Marvel Comics. The branding isn't helping anything. The branding does not make it clear what is happening at all. And then the Red Sonja book is not Marvel's Red Sonja. It's the movie Red Sonja, which Uh, did you know Red Sonja had a movie? I did, yeah. I love Brigitte Nielsen. Oh, shit. I didn't. (laughs) There's a couple of other standout things here. Just to mention a few things, there's a Conan Red Sonja team up in issue nine, The Trail of the Bloodstained God. That name is fucking dynamite. (laughs) There's a few other, sure, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom both got issues for your 
Your Eyes Only and Octopussy both got issues, as well as Empire and Jedi. That all makes sense. Fine. There are some questionable ones, like Dune. I have no issue with Dune, but like, all right, Labyrinth. Okay. Well, Labyrinth makes sense. You know, I'll even give them Dark Crystal, which came in at the 24th issue. But the one that really fucking takes my breath away is issue 32's hyper cartoony The Muppets Take Manhattan, which would sit on the shelf so close to Sheena and Conan the Destroyer, which are basically porn, that I am... Who was this for? I mean, kids? Question mark? Like, what? Well, the any musical adaptation that came in in issue number 23 was probably for kids. Yeah, this... Oh, man. Trying to figure out what you what of these you could actually buy for your children is kind of insane. I do love some of the otter appearances, like Star Trek The Motion Picture at issue 15. The And this one, really, I'm gayer for reading it. Xanadu got issue 17, which that's as close to a Xanadont as you get. Now, I also need to say that with all of this discussion, I mentioned that there were a number of characters that Marvel were hoping to adapt before Conan. And sure enough, they did try adapting Tarzan. Now, I actually think number 29, that Tarzan cover, Tarzan of the Ape, is like one of the most famous Marvel covers of all time. It like permanently lives in my memory. I don't know if that's just me, but there are a few surprises here, though. For instance, I had never heard of Rock and Rule, which was evidently a Canadian animated feature from the 80s. I did not know that the comic adaptation had so little funding that the comic book adaptation is just stills from the movie lettered. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Of course, there is also some like actual gems to be mined from this. Particularly, number 10 is a Star-Lord store, but it's not any Star-Lord store. It's actually Star-Lord from Earth 791. And this is an like an alternate version of Star-Lord that is like actual Marvel Comics canon. And there are multiple comics about this other version of Star-Lord with a very different look, very different vibe. It's really interesting to see these little magic things that I think people just don't know are out there. And I guess it's funny because we just kind of, at a certain point as fans, you start to stockpile this stuff because it is never unreasonable to expect rights allowing that some of this stuff would return. Because even to play around with it today and be like, this is happening because of this weird thing that I, the writer, read when I was a kid and now I want to like show you young people who are reading this. It's one of the most fun things about comics. It's really how I transitioned from being a kid who just loved comics because they were cool, you know, stories to seeing Morrison do that and having that be like a older brother, cool uncle type who had experience of stuff that I did not and could be like, I remember these stories that you never got to see that were so weird and I want to present them to you in a way where I'm not forcing you to read nonsensical 50s writing, but I am pulling the gems out of them to bring into a modern context. Well, bringing these gems into a modern context was pretty much Jim Shooter, bastard he is, his main goal with Epic Illustrated and Epic Comics, the thing that spun me into Marvel Comics, Super Comics, Comic Book Comic, whatever the fuck it was called. But so from 1980 to 1986, Marvel had Epic Illustrated. And in 1982, they started Epic Comics, which was a way that they could allow for creator-owned titles. They would also allow for some Marvel 
little heroes here and there. But moreover, this was Marvel's way to do really, really adult things like show us Daredevil's Billy Club in the pages of Electra Lives Again. Now, there were a handful of pretty significant Marvel works from Epic and also some pretty forgettable ones. But I would say Electra Assassin, Electra Lives Again, Wolverine and Havoc Meltdown, Silver Surfer Parable, and the third volume of Tomb of Dracula are all pretty memorable Marvel epic moments. And really think about that because I think a lot of us are aware of those stories not as being part of Epic Illustrated, just as being things that we know about. But they really were drawn up, you know, they were really created to be part of a more adult line. And that more adult line would go on to see so many creator-owned works. I did find that the most published work from Epic Illustrated was a title that I feel like I've always seen, but I know like truly nothing about. There's a book called Alien Legion, which was created, at least initially edited, by Archie Goodwin, Laura Sutton, and Jim Shooter. And it ran initially in 1984 and would run two volumes and a ton of one-shots. But this title had over 50 issues. And while the initial volumes have sort of like very, you know, plain names, the most unbelievable thing is the one-shot names. Mm. Binary Deep, Jugger Grimrod, which I'm not sure I don't have to censor. <laughs> On the Edge, One Planet at a Time, Slaughter World, and Tenants of Hell. I want to read this book based on titles alone. Yeah, I'm interested. Now, speaking of titles or things that would get me to read these things based on something in the title, Clive Barker, like, hi, I'm gay, let's torture the sex out of you. Clive Barker was actually responsible for a number of stories at Epic Comics. He did a series called Book of the Damned, which was a Hellraiser companion that ran four issues, 25 issues of a series called Nightbreed, six issues of The Harrowers, a 20-issue Hellraiser series, a Hellraiser Nightbreed team-up called Jihad, which that one I might censor, a Pinhead series, and then a Pinhead versus Martial Law series, Martial Law being another title at Epic. Now, there's actually a few that I think, TK, from Epic that you'd be familiar with as well. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, we have Akira, mm -hmm. The Inkle, mm -hmm. work by Mobius, mm -hmm. and Murata the She-Wolf, which I'm so glad you brought to me because I had forgotten all about this, which is insane because I've been to Chris Claremont's table, so I know he has this up to look at. I love that. Now, like, I actually didn't know about the Inkle as much. Uh, like, I knew about it, but, like, it wasn't until sitting on your couch and, like, cuddling with you, looking at your bookshelves, that I really got to see that this is, like, a thing. Like, some of this work from Epic has books about deciphering it written. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Inkle is, like, huge in non-American places throughout Europe, throughout South America, which is really weird because it's written by Ale Alexander Yadrowski, who, difficult figure to talk about right now, but a, a, an accomplished artist with very interesting ideas, primarily a filmmaker, but sort of understood something that I think a lot of us that fall in love with comics and then come together understand, which is that there is a tie between comics and moving image, be it TV or film, that is really important. And if you get one, you're almost guaranteed to get the other if you put effort into it. And he was somebody that understood filmmaking and so, you know, really understood comics and had an incredible collaborator in Mobius and they've done excellent work together, not just in Inkle, but in other things. Yudrowski's Dune is a very interesting documentary. He might be a horrible person. So trigger warning for a lot of stuff there. This is not somebody to laud, but it is an accomplished artist that it's worth paying attention to what he made 
that people were interested in and why. And that's part of what we talk about when we discuss these works critically. We're not, you know, saying go out and rally for this person. We're simply stating this work exists and it's been discussed. And a lot of times people fell in love with it at a time before the internet, before social media, before we were able to communicate with each other. Hey, I have this piece of information. This person is problematic. And so to take the academic journey of saying like, why was a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer popular is still an important thing, even if we can agree that the person who was the showrunner and the primary force behind that is a really problematic person who doesn't deserve our praise. That was something we didn't all know in 1997 and we couldn't have known. So tracking why we were paying attention to the show in 1997 is something I think we can all believe in the spirit of without saying like, that was a great guy who created it though. Speaking of people whose names are on some of these creations, William Shatner's Tech World ran 24 (laughs) issues at Epic. A couple of other pretty notable titles that caught my eye. I would say the pretty well-known Jim Starlin work, Dreadstar and Dreadstar and Company, Grew the Wanderer, ElfQuest had 32 issues at Epic. But when we talk about some of these phases that Marvel goes through where they're like, oh yeah, we're going to do major work with creator-owned content. It's hard not to remember how many times Marvel has tried this in the last few years and frankly, how often it's failed. While I believe technically Icon Comics is dormant now when they initially tried to pull Bendis's creator work into Marvel, they had it all under the Icon banner. Books like Powers, Takio, and Brilliant all ran at Marvel. A really beautiful recoloring of Casanova ran at Marvel. Uh, that's by Matt Fraction, Gabriel Ba, and Fabio Moon, two of the finest artists in like the history of the medium ever. Now that reverted back to Image. When Bendis left for DC and took his same three stories over and over again with him, he took his creator-owned work back to DC with him. Kick-Ass has not had a new story under the Icon banner in quite some time, though the first three volumes of Kick-Ass were over at Icon. There were another handful of Mark Millar books such as Secret Service, Super Crooks, and Superior. Even JMS, the writer of My Favorite Spider-Man run, had the Book of Lost Souls at Icon. But I mean, there were just so many attempts for Marvel to keep doing these sorts of like, we take stories seriously kind of titles. And they just always seem to just drop the ball. And I, if I can like look at one other thing about the Disney merger, I feel like, or the Disney acquisition, I I feel like they'll probably be doing a lot less of that. And it will be to the benefit of everybody. If you know that, that, you know, it's just not a possibility that Marvel is going to publish and like be able to honor your creator own content. You just won't even try and you can publish it somewhere else and it'll hopefully do great. But, you know, I think what we're looking at with a lot of these things is some of them, I think, might have had bigger legs than we realize, but rights issues really get in the way and they they just languish forever. I mean, I think it's a miracle that we got Angela the way we did. And so, you know, I, I see them probably doing less of this because it's more difficult to control. And even though that maybe means that something that could be published easily might not be in the long run, I think creating a culture in which we say like the big two have their things and they just publish those. And when we want to do our own stuff, we have all these other avenues might really be the best lane to keep it in. And I feel like what we're discussing kind of points to that. Because it is not a happy universe when you need to figure out how to re-extract characters. 
And that's the hardest part of this. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was actually really excited to talk about this, although I did far less research than you and know so much less. I have this specific memory of deciding that I was going to read Avengers No Road Home for a bunch of different reasons. And again, I can't stress enough that it's a really cool story. But I really thought, like, they're they're committing to Conan. I think really the first time I processed that, like, nothing was going to happen with that was uh, a few weeks ago when I was talking to you and you were explaining all this to me and just seeing that, like, for all they might have intended to commit who knows um it you know all that story work done to fold him in and to create these weird things like serpent war uh those will soon be done and this will not be a person that is going to be a staple of the marvel universe the way i was really certain they would be reading no road home i almost wonder how the gambit shook out because i'm going to go over some numbers about the omnibus values that led me to this and i just want to make a quick plug for a comic shop who helped me get these numbers together and helped me do this work when I was lucky enough to do a signing there a couple of weeks ago. I've been working on this project for a hot minute and the Geekery in New Jersey really helped me out with some cutoff date orders and, you know, the best guys in the world. You definitely want to check that shop out whenever you're in Central Jersey. They do an amazing job. And the idea that this new volume of Savage Avengers just started and Conan leaves in the fifth issue and as of the sixth issue, we're dealing with like Deathlock and 2099 stuff? <laughs> Wait, hold on. So Conan was purchased. He started being published in 2019. We got like 120 something comics out of it. They relaunched Savage Avengers under a new writer just to write Conan out, just in time for the final volume that features Conan to be published in Omnibus Edition. That's going to be the Savage Avengers on. I find myself kind of frustrated that Conan slipped into this second volume. I'm not saying he shouldn't have. I'm saying I'm a cleanliness guy. If you can tell me that if you leave this character floating around the ether, someone's going to pick them up and treat them right. Like, I just saw that Abulit is going to start appearing again, which, that's just a way to trick me into buying the comic. I can't believe you would do that to me. Doesn't matter who's writing it or what. If it's got Abulit, I'm going to buy it. Always. And if you can promise me that this really cool idea is going to show back up in a way that deserves my respect or in a way that shows some forethought. We talked about this a bit with Kid Loki winding up in the pages of Cullen Bunn's as Guardians of the Galaxy, despite it not really being my understanding of Kieran Gillen's Kid Loki. Sure. It feels to me like they said something to the effect of, well, we're going to get our money's worth. We got him till December. You're publishing that barbarian till December. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't really argue with that. I can't speculate, obviously. There's not a lot more to say, but it does feel like a bit of a bait and switch. And I wonder how much that also affected this release schedule. Now, in 2019, Marvel released four Conan omnibus editions. That's two omnibus editions of Savage Sword of Conan and two omnibus editions of Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian 1 and 2 came out in January and July, whereas Savage Sword came out in April and November of 2019. These were kind of standard, I guess, for Marvel. They, they do kind of run a bit of a range. And when I say a range, I'm referring to a sort of inconsistency we're really starting to see with page count in a way that I find a little distressing across the 10 Conan the Barbarian, just Conan the Barbarian. I'm not counting Sword of Conan. I'm not counting any of the other Omnibi, but just across the 10 volumes of Conan the Barbarian, the original Marvel years alone, you have a page count as low as 624 pages of which one of the issues in that volume is the official handbook of the Conan universe from 1986. But you also have a volume, volume five, coming in at 1,050 pages. That's almost double 
double the length three volumes later. There's sort of a lack of consistency there that I find a little hard to understand from the outside. That's always been something that I've had trouble understanding with omnibuses and that makes it difficult to engage in fandom that deals with them because uh, it, it borders on conspiracy theory a lot of the time and I feel like a company has its reasons why it does these things and that doesn't necessarily mean they're always you know whatever reason they thought it would be best to do it this way it doesn't mean they end up right but I I think it is reasonable for us to notice these things and say wow that's really weird but I feel like a lot of times people want answers that they're never going to get because they're trade secrets and so tales start being spun. Well on the other side of things Savage Sword of Conan across its eight volumes is a lot more consistent. Now this first year of publishing saw Conan the Barbarian 1 through 51 as well as the first annual and material from Giant Size Conan 1 through 4 as well as some other Marvel stories and there's even some like we borrowed a story from the other series for this omnibus stuff going on it's a little crazy but over in the Savage side of things they published Strange Tales 1 through 5's Conan material Savage Sword of Conan 1 through 28 as well as some of the specials also Marvel Comics Super Special number 2 which is the aforementioned Conan story so I brought it up now this first year of Conan Omnibus Four Omnibus Edition ran 3,648 pages. All right. I can live with that just as like a starting point to have in my brain. There's no like, oh, I'm judging. It's just like, it's a good starting point, you know? 2020 saw five Omnibus Editions come out. And it's a little strange. It's Conan the Barbarian 3 and 4, which are each about 840 pages. So I think that's terrific. Really good consistency there. It's also Sword of Conan number 3, which is 900 pages. It's pretty close to the first two. And that sees Conan the Barbarian Barbarian 58 through 115, as well as a bunch of other stuff, and Savage Sword of Conan 29 to 44. This is where it gets a little confusing, and I really needed to like triple check my numbers, but Marvel got permission to republish some of Dark Horse's Conan material. When Conan left Marvel, it went to Dark Horse before briefly returning to Marvel in like 2000 for a couple of short minis and then went right back to Dark Horse. But Kurt Busick did a bunch of Conan stories, and Marvel just did a 1024 page omnibus edition for it. What? Okay. I'm here for it, but I'm a little confused when Marvel publishes other people's stuff, even when they've bought it. It's like, you know, anytime somebody's like, oh, I wonder when Disney's going to force Universal to give up Marvel Islands of Adventure. And I'm like, why? Every time somebody goes to Universal, they have to pay Disney. Why would Disney say, no, give it back? They're making money off of it. Marvel publishing Dark Horse's work makes sense to me. It's just shocking at the volume they're trying to print here. It's also of note that this was the year that saw the 624 page Solomon Kane book published. I can't get over how weird I think this is. Uh, this featured Marvel premiere 33 through 34. Sword of Solomon Kane. All the pictures of this guy didn't see one single fucking sword. Issues 1 through 6. Conan Saga number 50. Dracula Lives number 3. Cull and the Barbarians 2 and 3. God, these titles. Marvel Preview 19. Monsters Unleashed number 1. And a bunch of Savage Sword of Conan. I'm not even reading those numbers. So this second year of Marvel Omnibus Editions gave us one additional omnibus and raised the count to 4,240 pages. Yeah, that's kind of like the Kane Omnibus. Like, <laughs> that additional 600 pages. Alright, I really understood these numbers. When we think about how many Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Editions we get a year, I would say we get four, maybe five. Uh, the last couple of years have seen a few more titles you might count as X-Men adjacent, like the Captain Britain Expanded uh, Edition that was printed using Alan Moore's own tiers 
I think that, you know, we can kind of count it X-Men Z, but then at most, I'm saying you get six X-Men omnibuses a year, and that's like pushing it a little bit. These next two years, 2021 and 2022, if I were a Conan fan, I would have fucking rioted. I would have lost my mind at how expensive these two years got. So now it depends on if you count books that feature Savage Avengers as something a Conan fan might have bought, considering there was yet no Savage Avengers omnibus. And due to the perhaps parental advisory on Savage Avengers, or maybe due to Conan himself, Savage Avengers remains not on Marvel Unlimited. So you may have said to yourself, this is a harder book to get. If something has the omnibus, I'm going to buy it. Well, there's an Empire omnibus, which contains the Empire Savage Avengers special. I mention this because the Savage Avengers special is ultimately excluded from the Savage Avengers omnibus. They left one issue out and it's in another omnibus edition. Oh, it's so fucking frustrating. So with that in mind, you might feel you need to buy the Omnibus Edition. We're about to hit numbers so large, I'm not here to read everything. But in 2021, Marvel released seven proper Conan tie-in Omnibus Editions and the Empire one, which kind of leaves it up to you. We got two more, The Barbarians, with five and six. Now that goes from 116 to 171, plus bonuses. We got Savage Sword of Conan, number four and five, which is Savage Sword of Conan, 45 to 72. Now, that sees the one very low page count Savage Sword of Conan. That's the only one that comes in at less than 900 pages coming in at a tight 768. If I were still paying the same price point for that that I paid for one of the thousand page books, I'd be pretty annoyed. But, you know, all things considered, I would say the Savage line stayed pretty consistent. But where I lose my shit is all three Cull Omnibus editions came out the same year. People were clamoring for Cull. I guess. it, (laughs) It just, to me, starts to get a little prohibitively expensive with a May 5th release of Call of Atlantis, the Savage Sword original Marvel years at 952 pages. Then in August, Call the Destroyer at 784 pages. And then finally in October, Call of Atlantis, Call the Conqueror at 632 pages, plus that Empire Omnibus at 1,424 pages. Now, I use page count as an indication of price point in a lot of cases, which is why there's so much focus on page count but that put 2021's total page count for conan related omnibus editions at 7256 pages which is barely less than 2019 and 2020 combined yeah that's some real market saturation well nothing compares to 2022's 10 omnibus editions Mm. with 7 through 10 of conan the barbarian 6 through 8 of the savage sword of conan king conan sure savage avengers by jerry dugan and King in Black, which features three issues of Savage Avengers that technically you would be able to get from Savage Avengers by Jerry Duggan. But if you pre-ordered King in Black before that, if you weren't sure, just like you might not have been sure with the Empire edition, and look how that turned out, that's 10 total omnibus editions. That's 9,048 pages in 2022 alone. It becomes really hard not to see that it would appear Marvel only ever repurchased the rights to Conan to have access to their previous material. Now, I don't necessarily believe that's sinister. It's not exactly domain-sitting or anything, but the fact that it would appear that Marvel purchased the rights to this character and ultimately included him in an effort to print some 24,000 pages in four years. And this does not include any of the 100 issues of Conan that were released at Marvel since 2019 under Jason Aaron, among other writers. So, 
man, the more I think about the way this whole thing was synthesized, you know, I remember thinking when it all went down, you know, Jay Leno won this one and it's really not fair. He already has all the cars and that chin. Does he really need the late night show? And I was always afraid that Conan wouldn't really rebound. But, you know, he's doing great. Andy Richter's doing his own thing and wrong Conan. So, but the struggle for me is kind of a funny thing to look at. A number of years ago, Disney worked to get the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit back. They were eager to own one of Walt's first properties. They ultimately found that the rights owners of Oswald weren't interested in money nor other property. They literally wanted on-air hosts for their sporting events. Disney traded away ESPN anchor contracts for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. I don't love that. I think trading contracts in the name of, you know, the sports world where contracts can be traded like that. All right, but that's a person for a person. There's something a little weird when you do it this other way, right? Where it's a person for a concept. But the thing that I'm stuck on is did Marvel do the right thing for the character by potentially stagnating Conan for four years? They knew that in this time, there would not be Conan stories that barring some miracle of success where they decided that this character would remain in publication forever. So, you know, let's go under this as the worst case scenario. What we got, what happened. It's the worst case scenario. I don't believe stagnating the Conan comic industry temporarily to put some 24,000 pages of content back into circulation was the wrong move. While it's true, and I am horrified at the lack of diversity that went into these these titles, the lack of creators of color, the lack of non-male creators is truly frustrating. I don't know that I was seeing Conan get a lot of work from those creators regardless. And the idea that even if it was done through a really intensely capitalist bent, we're seeing 24,000 pages of work that would have been lost otherwise able to be historiographied on this podcast, even from an outsider's perspective, doing it all by ISBN number. I think the experiment was worth it. You know, I can't say that I disagree. I mean, I don't know that this was going to be the same character as like Miracle Man when it comes to coming into the Marvel Universe. I guess I just kind of, my my, my only question becomes, where do we go from here? I can only hope that it's somewhere that has a better understanding of essentially the forward and backward of interpolating characters from other canis. I don't truly think that this is the end of Conan at Marvel, especially with the Conan property being public domain in Europe. Maybe Panini Comics is going to continue, which was a Marvel subsidy that did Captain Britain reprints in Europe for a while. Maybe something like that. Maybe Disney through some secondary shareholder can continue to see these works published where it's legal, where it's okay, and it's It's not violating anything. But I kind of feel like I'm smarter for this. I kind of feel like even if I learned a lot of stuff about a bunch of stuff I'm never going to use again, I also learned some things about the nature of the operation of this industry and the way these behind the scenes moves reflect much more than we can see from our desktops. I couldn't agree more. And like like you said, you know, this, this art mattered. These stories mattered. There's interesting stuff here. You can click around wikis about this stuff and find things that 
you never thought would have been a part of this in the first place. If you know a thing or two about this, you might there might be characters that you didn't realize were a part of it. There is a whole world here, and I certainly don't regret going on a little dive through it with you. Well, until we dive even deeper together to find out more weird things about the functional world that the Marvel Universe has created and finally get that answer. Is Thusla Doom related to Victor? TK, where can everybody find you online? You find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx and of course on this show, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, doing whatever I can to talk about whatever books Nico will let me talk about. As always, you can find me doing the same thing, talking about whatever books Nico will let me talk about on this show, as well as over on the Partner channel, YouTube's Hubs Plus Network, with all sorts of extended interviews and uh, original content that you won't be able to find anywhere else, like my and Tori Sheehan's examination of Daredevil in The Billy Club. You can also find this show at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter. You can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So keep those Hyborian lights lit. Um, keep swinging your Chimera sword, I guess. Um, pomegranates for phoenixes. And we'll see ya. 